Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. On January 31st, the United Nations Security Council held a meeting about Russia's military buildup on the border of Ukraine. But before this meeting could commence, Russia called for a procedural vote. Now, most of the time at the Security Council, there is unanimous consent that the topic at hand should be discussed at the Security Council. But on this day, Russia blocked consensus and called for a vote. In these circumstances, there is no veto, but in order for an agenda item to be considered, it needs to secure at least nine affirmative votes among the 15-member council. In the end, 10 council members voted to proceed. Russia and China voted no, Kenya, Gabon, and India abstained. And this is how the highly anticipated Security Council meeting on Ukraine kicked off. And with me to help understand what happened at this meeting and any potentially significant outcomes is Ashish Pradhan, who covers Security Council affairs for the International Crisis Group. We kick off discussing this procedural vote before having a broader conversation about the international and geopolitical dynamics informing diplomacy around this crisis. Now, this episode is obviously being published ahead of my normal schedule. It kind of came together at the very last minute. We recorded our conversation live via Twitter Spaces, and we recorded it maybe like a half an hour or less after the Security Council meeting concluded. So this is a very fresh take from an expert on Security Council affairs. I think you'll enjoy it. I know I did. And now here is Ashish Pradhan of the International Crisis Group. That was a sort of a key moment early on, just to see, you know, it's a new Security Council you know, with five members, uh, you know, who just joined at the start of this month, uh, those being Ghana, Gabon, Albania, uh, Brazil, and um, uh, I'm blanking on the fifth, but, you know, essentially, I think the, the difficult part was for a lot of these new members to stake out a position on an issue like this, I think was tricky in any circumstance, you know, especially given the strong interests of the U.S. and the Europeans on one side and Russia on the other. So I think the fact that the U.S. was able to get 10 votes and get uh, the likes of the UAE, the likes of uh, um, Ghana uh, and, of course, Albania as well, to support this call showed that I think it, it did quite a bit of lobbying behind the scenes. Uh, because absent that, I think the, the tendency might have been for most of these other members uh, to not take a strong position one way or the other. Also notable because, you know, I think this is the first time that this iteration of a regional grouping like the A3 or the three African members, you know, have split with Gabon and Kenya abstaining and, and Ghana voting for holding the meeting. Uh, I think, you know, there were some uh, uh, interest in seeing how China would position itself vis-a-vis the meeting. And I think, you know, the Chinese ambassador speaking before the meeting, you know, said quite clearly that they think uh, this meeting is not helpful at this time because it's a time for quiet diplomacy. So certainly any, uh, you know, potential indications of a, uh, not even a split, but even some distance between China and Russia, I think was uh, dispatched early on. Uh, So, you know, a a few elements there, you know, showing the lobbying and diplomacy that the U.S. had done to garner support behind the scenes. 
but also the sort of steadfastness with which uh, you, know, uh, you know the China Russia uh, partnership sort of continues, uh, you know, including on this issue. Uh, but you know, there's there's more uh, in terms of console dynamics that we can go into, you know, when, once we get into the sort of meat and bones of the of the actual conversation. Yeah, I, I I will, and it's just interesting, at least to me, to note that ten affirmative votes, while sufficient, is not like an overwhelming uh, sort of response from uh, to from by most of the Security Council, by by the rest of the Security Council, to uh, America's call to to hold this meeting in the first place, which I thought was was interesting. No, I, I agree, and I mean, I think the one of the headlines for me is the fact that this meeting in itself wasn't. Uh, didn't have any sort of overwhelming or, or headline takeaways in terms of a broad rebuke of Russia. I think, I think you know we're seeing uh, some commentary from our colleagues on, uh, on on Twitter and in the UN world already saying that maybe this meeting didn't go the way that the US might have wanted uh, because there there wasn't as much of a let's isolate Russia, let's name and shame them into uh, you know uh, a, a little bit of a corner that didn't happen as, as much as I think one would have thought. So I think that that sense of an overwhelming takeaway was a little bit lacking in the in the end. Uh, can you sort of help us understand why the United States called for this meeting in the first place? I mean, you know, this is a situation, a potential, you know, veto-wielding member of the Security Council threatening another country uh, in which you know one would not think it's right for diplomacy at the security council so why would in the first place the united states the biden administration seek to call this meeting uh, i think that's a really one of the, the core questions that i at crisis group we have been grappling with ever since the meeting was uh, you know officially confirmed at the at the end of last week i think there's a few pieces that go into it you know certainly one is that they wanted to use the platform to try to isolate the russians again you know i, I mentioned that maybe that part wasn't as successful i think the other part of it was it was a bit of a there was a bit of a sort of artificial time pressure as it were because i think there was a sense that with tomorrow being the 1st of february and the start of russia's presidency on the council maybe it would be a little bit trickier to you know, set the tone of this sort of debate, you know, with Russia holding the, the council's chair. Uh, but I, th- I think the other part of it was in terms of why they wanted to to take this approach was how um, one European diplomat put it to me at the end of last week, which was, it's really a battle of narratives. Um, and it's not necessarily about coming up with any clear policy responses or doing anything sort of practically that would change the dynamics on the ground or indeed change too much about the diplomatic initiatives going on at the at the regional level and and elsewhere that is really about bringing the narrative of Russia's aggression to the council you know before any escalation potentially even starts and i think you know maybe that's where some of the the, the utility was seen from the us side was that they would have this meeting as a sort of a foundational uh, conversation from which to build on if there's a need for you know, further emergency meetings if there's an escalation on the ground uh, so on this idea of, of a battle of narratives as that uh, diplomat put it to you what narrative did you see the united states and its key allies seek to establish at this meeting i think it was you know trying to paint a, a clear picture of the usual Russian playbook. I think it was, um, I forget, I think it might have been Albania who, 
who was the one that, that pointed out that you know, this is the usual Russian playbook that we see of aggression on one hand and then denial and sort of deflection on the other. So trying to paint uh, the sort of, uh, you know, trying to connect the dot between uh, how it acted in 2008 in Georgia, 2014 in Crimea, and how it's acting now to you know, clearly articulate that you know, we've seen this before, here's what's happening, here's why we must be uh, sort of, you know, really aware of this. Um, it was also interesting to me that, you know, there were quite a few members who did speak of some role for the council, that, the, you know, council can be, a, so I think it was the UAE ambassador, for example, who said that the Security Council can be a platform for members to present uh, their views and to present their differences and to resolve those differences. And I think that's maybe a, a very generous reading of the council, you know, given what we've seen of the council and its ability to positively impact uh, conflict dynamics in, in recent years. But at the same rate, I think it does echo, at least in rhetoric, you know, maybe, you know, a, a utility of the council being a place where these views can be aired out in the open. And I think that was the, the last part of it, I think, was, was a quite clear uh, articulation by Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield from the U.S., who said that you know, we've had hundreds of uh, meetings and conversations with officials in the region, in Ukraine, with the Russian uh, government, but this was a time they felt the need to bring some of this out in public. Um, so I think that, again, clearly a sort of public diplomacy, setting that narrative part of it was was quite a, a critical component. And I think they, you know, they managed to to show and you know bring to the fore you know some of the facts and figures. Even though I think I, I saw, uh, I think it was Colin Lynch from Foreign Policy saying on on Twitter that he would have liked to see a bit more uh, visual uh, aid presented in in the meetings. Certainly that could have helped. But I think that you know trying to lay out the facts on the ground and trying to really uh, say that what Russia is presenting, what Russia is disputing in terms of what's happening on the ground, what they're doing vis-a-vis their troop mobilization, you know, can easily be. Um, challenge. So I think that was that was part of where the, the battle of narratives came in from the U.S. side. And, and from the Russia side, it seemed that their narrative was just like very transparent during the Russian perm reps um, presentation. He called into question the veracity of allegations that 100,000 troops are massing at the border, suggesting, ah, oh, this is just where their barracks are. And at one point, uh, he even brought up Colin Powell's presentation to the United Nations ahead of the Iraq War to suggest that the United States was once again misleading the world about its uh, intelligence, uh, suggesting this massive troop buildup at the border. Uh, what did you make of Russia's attempt to establish its own narrative at this meeting? I think it was about what we would expect. You know, we've certainly seen from Russia on a number of different issues, both close to home when it comes to Ukraine and certainly when it comes to Crimea, you know, especially in in the last sort of year and a half or so, it's really tried to go more on the front foot at the Security Council. And what I mean by that is, you know, instead of waiting for the annual meeting on uh, Ukraine or uh, meetings that are called by the Western members of the Security Council where it's forced to sort of defend itself. It's been increasingly calling for and convening meetings, uh, you know, especially informal meetings, uh, you know, which are called ARIA formula meetings, where it brings speakers, uh, you know, who put to, put forward a narrative that's much more favorable to, to the one being presented by Moscow. You know, saying that, you know, uh, uh, living conditions, for example, are quite uh, positive. There's been overall progress, etc. And you know, painting uh, Kiev as the, the 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 bad guy in in 
in that equation. And I think, you know, we, we've seen in, in this case as well sort of a similar uh, attempt by Russia and Ambassador Nabenzia to, to try to put forward uh, the sort of narrative that, firstly, that, you know, it's the one that's being uh, pushed into a, a bit of a, a corner in terms of the, the threats that it's facing, uh, saying that, the, you know, the need for this meeting was com- completely unjustified. Uh, but also, I think, you know, trying to uh, take advantage of or trying to draw a, a bit of a wedge uh, using the comments of Ukrainian President Zelensky, you know, kind of, you know, which have, I think have been aimed at not uh, triggering a panic, you know, domestically to say that, look, you know, even the Ukrainians themselves say there's no need to panic, that you know, no one's looking for war, etc. So why are we having this meeting? And I think that... Um, you know, in a way, was a was a clever thing for him to evoke. You know, again, trying to use the sort of Ukrainian uh, sort of top leadership view uh, to Russia's advantage. But you know, I think how Ukraine and the Ukrainian uh, ambassador who uh, spoke at the at the end of the meeting played it was was interesting as well. Where. I think you noted, Mark, that it was a very different tone in parts of his speech yeah. where he talked about the fact that Kiev is ready to defend itself, you know, if it's uh, uh, if Russia decides to to go in that direction. But at the same time, he did speak about the fact that you know they're hoping to use all diplomatic channels and really hoping to uh, uh, you know pursue the path of dialogue to prevent that from happening. So, uh, in some ways, I think you know Russia's uh, efforts uh, to try to drive a bit of a wedge was interesting, but also didn't necessarily play out the way that they would have wanted either. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, keeping on this idea of like these battle of of narratives is as like kind of the main purpose of this Security Council meeting. I mean, it seemed to me that other than um, this idea that some countries, China, most among them, um, you know, suggested that the Security Council wasn't like the right forum to discuss this, that we need quiet diplomacy right now. um, You didn't really see any other members of the Security Council in any meaningful way endorse like the Russian narrative, unless I, I miss something. I mean, you did see at the end, Belarus uh, spoke, um, but they're not a member of the security council. Did you hear anything from any of the other 14 members of the security council suggesting to you that any other member of the council is even sort of remotely allied with, with Russia at the moment or is endorsing endorsing of their narrative? So there's a couple of bits and pieces. So, uh, so India, for example, you know, in, in its remarks, you know, I think really focused on, uh, you know, resolving this through the existing uh, format and through the Normandy format and existing mechanisms there. Uh, Brazil's comments, uh, which I think were interesting, trying to maybe split the difference a bit, you know, because as you noted, Mark, uh, Brazil actually voted in favor of holding the meeting, which I think might have been a bit of a surprise to some, you know, given that I think there's been an expectation that Brazil would more align itself with Russia and China when it comes to broader council issues than the other members of of, of the the 15. Uh, but in, you know, at the start of his uh, remarks, the Brazilian ambassador, you know, really said that you know, both uh, threats of military as- action and escalation, but also threats of unilateral sanctions are unhelpful in uh, in, in this current situation. So I, it sounded like you're know, trying to hedge a little bit where Brazil supported the U.S. in holding the meeting, but also echoed, you know, what's typically very uh, Chinese and Russian line of going against sanctions. So there's, you know, bits and pieces in terms of the Russian narrative that, you know, we saw from, uh, you know, some members like India and, 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 and Brazil kind of being echoed a little bit, but certainly not, you know, to the same degree with which uh, China, for example, which ended its remarks saying that, you know, Russia's concerns should be heeded, that, you know, NATO and its expansion is really a problem that, that has to be uh, um, 
uh, addressed in, in in some shape or form. So so I think you know obviously China being the much more uh, weighty, much more vocal backer, uh, you know, was hard to to replicate for for any of the others. But there are so you know, again certain el- elements which suggested that uh, India doesn't see this issue being positively discussed at the council. Uh, Brazil doesn't see the the utility or or use of imposing unilateral sanctions, etc., which fit with uh, with uh, you know some of the Russian talking points. Uh, so I, I wanted to focus a bit more on Chinese diplomacy at the Security Council and, and more broadly when it comes to uh, this crisis. I was personally most interested going into this meeting to see uh, how the Chinese would position themselves. You know, just last week, uh, they reiterated their call for a truce during the Olympics, which I, I think starts next week or maybe even later this week. Um, so I was sort of expecting, perhaps wrongly, that uh, the Chinese perm rep would be explicit and once again reiterating that call for an Olympic truce. Uh, He did not. Uh, Rather, his emphasis, as you said earlier, was that the Security Council is not an appropriate forum for discussing this issue at this moment. What do you make of Russia's position on the Security Council vis-a-vis the Ukraine crisis right now? Like, What did today's meeting reveal to you? You meant uh, China's position, right, Mark? I think you... Yeah, pardon me. Yeah, China's position, yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, I I, I have to admit, I was looking at the same thing where I was wondering, are they going to, you know, make some sort of rhetorical appeal with the Olympics coming up and, you know, supposed Olympic truce that, you know, that should be further reason for both parties to avoid escalation. I, you know, I think obviously they avoided doing that for whatever reason, but, you know, the their statement, you know, did talk about the need for the fact that you know they said there is a need for diplomacy, uh, you know, in a way, and, and talked about the need for dialogue uh, and urged parties to continue pursuing talks. Uh, you know, at the very least, you know, suggest that they, you know, they they agree that there's something to that needs to be talked about. There's something that needs to be resolved. Even though obviously, you know, again, they they sided with uh, you know Russia's interpretation of uh, NATO's expansion being at the core of the problem. Um, they also, you know, talked about uh, the fact that I think you know, what they echoed in terms of uh, Russia's talking point, which was you know, there really is no no basis for 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 concerns regarding our war, which is a, a little bit worrying, right? So they didn't go nearly as far in terms of being a slightly more uh, nuanced, uh, taking a slightly more nuanced position, you know, vis-a-vis the potential of escalation. Uh, so in a way, it seemed much more a lockstep, you know, with the, the, the Russian position than, uh, you know, certainly one might have hoped. Um, I think it'll be interesting to see how some of this plays out if there's a, a sort of a, a your next emergency meeting that has to be called between now and the, the 17th, which is when, interestingly, there's a uh, the, the regular meeting of the Security Council, uh, you know, on Ukraine, which happens every February. It just so happens that this time it's happening when, uh, uh, you know, tensions on the ground are, are really almost at unprecedented levels and also uh, at the same time that Russia holds the, the council presidency. But, you know, I think, you know, whatever happens between now then and, and beyond, I, I think we'll really start to maybe tease out a little bit more of the Chinese position. We may well see them just sort of uh, toe the Russian line and not really deviate much from that, you know, seeing that, um, you know, there's a, a you know, they, they see, you know, not much value in trying to, uh, uh, you know, carve out a sort of a more specific position. Um, but, you know, when it comes down to it, I think this is what uh, the Norwegian ambassador was uh, pointing to when she said that, uh, 
she didn't mention China, but she definitely mentioned Russia in saying that, you know, look, Russia is the one that talks all the time about sovereignty, territorial integrity being sort of principles of the international system. Well, we hope that they uh, live to that, uh, uh, you know, standard, you know, in, in the case of Ukraine. So you would think, you know, China, of course, is another state that really harps on those those two principles a lot, you know, in, in all council discussions. So I'm sure, you know, uh, quietly, they would be worried about what uh, Russian aggression would uh, would mean for the sort of the broader uh, respect for uh, sovereignty and, and territorial integrity. But whether they actually articulate that openly, you know, especially in a council meeting, um, today certainly didn't indicate that they were willing to go that far just yet. Ashish, I'm interested in sort of learning from you what role you see the Security Council playing uh, in sort of relation to other diplomatic avenues that are ongoing in dealing with this crisis in Ukraine. You have the so-called Normandy format, for example, in which Germany, Ukraine, France, and Russia are meeting and, and have regularly met to discuss this crisis. You have ongoing diplomacy at the OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. You know, broadly speaking, you know, going forward, what role do you see the Security Council playing uh, in terms of, of mitigating or presenting opportunities to avoid, say, a worst-case scenario in which Russia, in fact, does invade and war breaks out? Thanks, Walk. I think that's another uh, important question as well. And I have to apologize to, I think, some of the listeners who might be joining in, you know, with, uh, you know, great hopes of the council making a meaningful difference. But I think the likelihood of that is quite remote. You know, again, partially that's because of the, the veto and Russia, you know, holding a, a veto with which, you know, it can really put a stop to any uh, considerable, uh, you know, diplomatic initiatives that are presented at the council. Um, I think, you know, at, at most, you know, we would see it, the council being used as the kind of platform for you know what was turned by the Chinese uh, ambassador today for microphone diplomacy, uh, you know, and and to try to set the narrative to try to uh, you know put a bit of diplomatic pressure on the other side, and especially for the the Western members to try to for the U.S. and, and the other Western members who maybe try to uh, you know back Russia into a bit of a diplomatic corner. Uh, now, a couple of things there. Um, you know, the first, which, which is also something that I was discussing with some diplomats last week, was, you know, no matter what you try in terms of trying to isolate Russia, you know, and we've seen this over countless, uh, over a dozen uh, resolutions which Russia has vetoed on Syria, you know, since the start of the Syrian civil war, that Russia never, never really responds in the way in which you would hope or expect or wanted to respond. That, you know, it certainly wouldn't, I think Russian Ambassador Nebenzia today said in his remarks right at the very outset that, you know, the reason we called for a procedural vote was not because we're afraid of having this sort of discussion. So I think, uh, you know, Russia will, uh, you know, and, you know, the sort of Russian uh, diplomatic corps is usually quite good and quite adept at, uh, you know, uh, using uh, diplomatic and, and sort of the UN charter and you know, the, the different sort of working methods of the council uh, and the UN to their benefit. So, you know, getting one over on them, you know, at the, at the council certainly seems like a, a remote possibility, even when it comes to taking them by surprise. So, so that's one. I think the the other part of it will be, you know, to see how council diplomacy dovetails or let's say interacts with uh, you know regional diplomacy. So, one of the things, for example, one of the reasons I think is that we had this meeting being held today versus the end of last week was, I think, um, 
from what crisis group understood, uh, France wanted to hold off on holding this meeting until uh, President Macron had a, had a chance to have the call with uh, President Putin, um, and that you know they wanted to give that uh, an opportunity to take place before the council convened. And obviously, uh, that's a very sort of uh, uh, anecdotal, it's only sort of one small example of how council diplomacy can take a backseat to whatever is happening at the regional level. And I think we'll continue to see that. And I think, you know, of the European members, you know, you mentioned the Normandy format. Obviously, there's been a lot covered about Germany's view, uh, vis-a-vis Russia. Maybe that's shifting a little bit. Maybe that's uh, toughening up a little bit, especially if there is an actual invasion. Uh, certainly, France's view towards Russia, in, including at the Security Council, has been a little bit more, I guess, nuanced and trying to be a little bit more accommodative might be too strong of a word, but it's certainly a little bit different than their other P3 members, the UK and the US, where they've tried to take slightly more maybe cooperative tone to trying to engage with the Russians, even on difficult issues, um, including Russia, uh, sorry, including Syria in, in the past. So I think, you know, seeing how these members that have a stake both at the regional level, but also here at the council will try to calibrate the maybe sometimes quite uh, ambitious or proactive uh, tendencies of the U.S. will be, you know, just one of the, the interesting sort of subplots that, you know, even within the allies, what do people see as the, the useful times where the council sh- can step in, can play a role. And I, I think I'll also point out that you know, this meeting today was, uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, officially only called by the U.S. I don't think any of the European members officially joined them in sort of co-sponsoring the meeting, which you know, isn't necessarily a huge deal, but also you know, in sort of other occasions, maybe we would have seen if the timing was a little bit different, if, let's say, down the line, if uh, the talks completely failed to deliver a breakthrough, then I think we would see a much more sort of united effort. Um, but until then, I think it, it seems like there's a little bit of hedging going on as well. Uh, so maybe I'll just conclude by observing, uh, you know, I, I've followed the Security Council for for a long time, uh, having covered the United Nations as a journalist since like 2005. And, you know, the one thing, I think maybe like my one big takeaway from this meeting was that I expected there to be a little more daylight revealed between China and Russia than actually was. And, and um, China's decision to sort of Take its oppor- use the opportunity of the meeting to condemn the format as opposed to say anything substantive uh, about Russia's military buildup and you know ahead of an Olympics that they're hosting uh, later this week or next week was at least to me interesting and significant. Uh, is there like one kind of big takeaway that you would um, that you would you know want to discuss, wanted to point out uh, before we open it up to questions from the audience? Thanks, Mark. I think that that's certainly one. I think, again, the other for me is that they, there wasn't a sort of as much of a vocal, widespread, unified rebuke, even among those members that voted for the holding of the meeting, a rebuke of, of Russia and Russian aggression as much as I think the U.S. would have wanted. Mm-hmm. And I think we saw a lot of appeals for dialogue and, and, and you know, uh, pursuing this through the existing formats at Normandy, etc., and the OSCE uh, to play a role. But, you know, what we didn't see was a complete sort of Russia is, uh, you know, taking all these steps it's the reason for this aggression it must stop you know etc we didn't see that so i think that in, in, in its own right is a bit of a takeaway for me all right thank you all for listening thank you to ashish and to all who participated in this last minute gathering on twitter it was a very timely conversation and i hope you enjoyed it i know i learned a lot from ashish All right, we'll see you next time. And as always, please send me your thoughts or suggestions of people I should interview or topics I should cover. I love hearing from you. 
I will see you next time. Bye.